2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel 12. The whole theme of the book of 2 Samuel is a heart after God. And as we've been studying David for the last few chapters, he has not had a heart after God. David thought he had gotten away with his sin, but a a visit from Nathan the prophet brought everything into the open. So now we're going to find out what David will do at this moment. Does David threaten to execute or imprison or run down those who question his behavior? Or does David come clean? And what about the deeper question? Even if David comes clean, is there forgiveness? Is there forgiveness for people who do the things David did? And is there any hope of moving forward when you've lived wickedly and hurt others? Well, tonight we're going to find out. 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. Right after Nathan pronounces God's discipline upon David, David said unto Nathan, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. I, most literally, I am guilty of violating God's law, is what that statement means. And it implies that a penalty must be paid for the wrongdoing. Now, if we just take the words, I have sinned, at face value, David's response to Nathan exposing his sin doesn't seem any different than Pharaoh or Saul at first. Pharaoh responded to Moses twice by saying the words, I have sinned. Saul also, when Samuel confronted him with wrongdoing, said the words, I have sinned. So why does God spare David? I mean, I guess spoilers, sorry. Why does God spare David, but not Pharaoh and not Saul, when they say the exact same words? Well, a little context is important here. Turn over to Exodus with me, and let's have a look at Pharaoh's words. <clears throat> Exodus nine twenty seven. Exodus nine twenty seven tells us. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron, and he said unto them, I have sinned. Anything else in your Bible? This time. I have that underlined in my Bible because it's important. The Lord is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. Entreat the Lord, for it is enough that there be no more mighty thunderings and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. I have sinned this time, Pharaoh? (laughs) We're seven plagues in by this point, buddy. What do you mean this time? How about Exodus 10, verses 16 and 17, the next time he says these words? Exodus 10, 16, then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in case. This is one plague later. And he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive, I pray you, my sin only this once. And entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. Pharaoh's confession, I put it in air quotes, confession had stipulations to it, additions to the confession. We'll find something similar if we examine King Saul. Turn to 1 Samuel, not too far from where we are in 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel 15. This is the second time that Saul blows it. The first time is when he sacrificed before Samuel got there, thinking that he could just go through the motions of this and satisfy the people so they wouldn't stop running away from him. Now the second time, Saul has disobeyed the Lord. 1 Samuel 15, verse 30, after Samuel tells Saul that the kingdom's going to be ripped from him. Then he said, 1 Samuel 15, 30, then he, Saul, said, I have sinned. 
Yet honor me now, I pray you, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Similar statements, by the way, that Pharaoh and that, Sam, that Saul make, your God, both of them use that phrase, interesting enough. I've sinned against your God. But again, yet honor me now in front of everyone so it seems like everything's okay. I have sinned, but can you just do this for me? Stipulations, additions. The, any sentence that is, I have sinned, but fill in the blank, is an oxymoron. <laughs> the first part of that sentence doesn't agree with the second part if there's a, I have sinned, but that comes afterwards. It ignores the submission to the deserved penalty part of a confession. It's like I'm saying I'm guilty, yes, but not so guilty I deserve the penalty that you say I deserve. And so when David says the words only, I have sinned against the Lord, there's no stipulation, no additions. It's a simple confession. I am guilty, and I deserve everything you've pronounced upon me. And yet, there is something deeper that David accepts that Nathan has not mentioned up to this point. Nathan has told him, you're going to have wars from now on. From your own bloodline is going to come up, you know, rebels against you, take the kingdom from you. What Nathan has not said is, and for your murder and adultery, which are capital crimes, you shall die. David has no, he has no promise that God isn't going to kill him. And so when David simply says, I have sinned against the Lord, David is also accepting that he deserves to die for what he did. And he's prepared to, fa- prepared to face that as well. In 1 John 1.9, it says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word confess, it means to say the same thing, homo logio, to say the same thing. Same thing as who? The same thing that God says about my sin, that it's wrong and it deserves whatever judgment God says it deserves. And that is what I say to God about my sin. God promises to forgive me and to change me. And so, at the end of verse 13 here, we see Nathan's response. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Put away means to remove guilt and often the associated punishment. You shall not die as a result of God removing the guilt. Death was the appropriate punishment for an adulterer or for a murderer. And so David is forgiven and the guilt is removed. Now, forgiveness and even the removal of punishment does not mean that our sin will not have consequences. There are natural consequences to our sin that have nothing to do with God's judgment, you know. Sometimes people, you know, will make a very bad decision, and it's, ah, oh, God's judging me. And I'm like, no, you're just sowing what you reaped. That, that's just life. That's a, it's, a, it's a life principle, you know. My, my, my very first pastor used to say, you can't sow your wild oats and pray for a crop failure. And so when we sow to the flesh, we reap corruption. We reap things that die. Now, in addition to that, sometimes... Depending upon how our sin impacts those around us, God must discipline us in a way that others know that God was not okay with what what we did. And so even though David will not die and God has removed the guilt, verse 14, he says, how be it, which means even though you won't be put to death, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, The child also that is born unto you shall surely die. The phrase here that you have given great occasion to blaspheme, it's all one phrase. It it means you have caused great disrespect amongst the Lord's enemies. Those who are opposed to God, who, who God is trying to reach, this has caused great disrespect for the Lord that now they don't, they fear God even less. 
And so the child that is born unto thee, plural, him and Bathsheba, shall surely die. So David would experience the two previous disciplines that Nathan announced earlier, plus this obviously heart-wrenching loss. Now when we read this, probably one of the first thoughts that come to mind is the child didn't do anything wrong. Why are you taking him? True. But this wasn't about the child. It was about God's enemies understanding an important truth. And that important truth is said in a verse that I partially quoted already in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. In Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, Galatians 6, verse 7, it says, do not be deceived. Now, you need to understand something. Anytime the Bible says don't be deceived, it means people are going to be deceived. They're going to not believe this. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to his flesh, of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit, of the Spirit reap life everlasting. God was not going to be mocked by what David did. And in my lack of wisdom, I sometimes wonder, God, could have you not communicated that truth that you won't be mocked some other way than killing the child? But when I have those thoughts, that's simply a reminder of how pride is always waiting to rise up in my heart. I, who do not know everything and make many mistakes, am a poor substitute for God in deciding what is just and right or what is most effective. And so while I don't understand why this was the only way that God could prove something that is very true and needs to be understood, that He will not be mocked, I must cling to the same faith that Abraham had when he said, surely the Lord of all the earth will do what is right. And You know, if we call ourselves a Christian, it comes down to the fact of whether we believe that or not. We just sing it. You know, I mean, it's easy to sing that song when you're not going through something like this. I say thanks, even in the waiting. I say thanks, you know, even in the breaking. As long as I have breath, do we mean it? Do we believe that he's he's still good? So, while we don't understand this fully, we must cling to the same faith that Abraham had. Surely the Lord of all the earth will do what is right. In Romans chapter 2, verse 2, it tells us very clearly that God's judgment is according to truth, that He never judges callously, He never judges unwisely. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And so, I trust Him even though it's hard for me to understand. Verse 15, 2 Samuel 12, says, And Nathan departed unto his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not. Neither did he eat bread with them." Here we see in verse 15 that God causes the child to be sick. The child, the toddler at this point in time, I have to imagine, he is never named in Scripture. But I can assure you that the one who would someday strike his own son because of our sin surely knew his name and understood the pain that this little one went through before he died. It is interesting to note here in verse 15 that the Lord says, struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David. The writer here does not call her David's wife, even though they are married and Uriah is dead at this point. He reminds us of the fact that this happened when he was still alive and when he was still married to Bathsheba. And it goes to show us that God does not necessarily look at relationships in the way that we do. 
The things that we call good, the things that we say it's love, or the things we say is, isn't this wonderful, God doesn't always think that way. David, therefore, when the child got sick, he besought. He made, besought means to make a verbal request. He began to pray and ask God for the child, you know, for his life. Now, why pray when God already said the child would die? We'll get that answer later on, so store that, you know, for an answer later on. And David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. You know, this may be the first time that David has thought about someone other than himself since everything happened with Bathsheba. It may be the first time he realized how his sin affected other people around him besides himself. <clears throat> David, it mentions here, he besought the Lord for the child. It means on behalf of or for the benefit of someone else. David, who had sacrificed all sorts of people to put them between him and God's judgment... He now places himself between God's judgment and the child. Now, some might say, well, that's easy for David to do now. He knows he's not going to die. He's in the clear. But David was never in the clear. David's anguish in Psalm 32, Psalm 38, and 51, those are clear for us. And the truth is, if this child dies, David's going to live with the knowledge that it was his fault for the rest of his life. Any parents out here ever wondered if you messed up your kid because of something you did? Yeah. That's rough enough as it is. Now, here's the truth of it. You did mess... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> truth of it is we're sinners and we have an impact, positive and negative, right? I mean, nobody's perfect, so we all have sometimes negative impacts on our kids. The truth, what I was going to say before I got silly, the truth is 99% of the time when we have that thought, that's the enemy trying to condemn us. He's trying to get us to give up or trying to get us to feel like a failure or keep us off the right, the right pace, the right track. It's not the Lord. But David in this case, <laughs> that is not the case here. David will live forever with the knowledge that it was his fault that this child died. And he'll live with that for the rest of his life. David's genuineness is shown by his refusal to eat, refusal to sleep in his bed. It mentions in verse 17 that the elders of his house, these are the, the, basically the highest ranking servants in his house, they kept coming to him to say, you gotta, you gotta go sleep in a bed, David, you gotta eat but he would not. David did eat at some point because it mentions here that this went on for seven days. But despite others' attempts to get him to resume some kind of normal life, David refuses. He would not eat like a king. He would eat alone, and he went right back to prayer afterwards. David's discipline here shows us that when you and I sin like this, there is a sense where you have to live with that failure and its consequences for the rest of your life. Because even after we're forgiven, we still remember. It's one of the reasons God warns us against these kind of sins. You know, it's, it's kind of like that trope you see in stories or movies a lot where the guy goes for the revenge and then what happens after the revenge doesn't bring the person back, Right? doesn't change what happened. Now, thankfully, that's not the end of the story. <laughs> and if you sin like this, if you've done something that devastated or destroyed others, well, there's more to tell here. In verse 18, and it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke unto him, and he would not listen unto our voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? 
David lived like this for an entire week. My personal guess is he would have lived like this until the child recovered or the child died. And the concern that his servants have here is how will he then vex himself? The word there, vex himself, it means to do evil, injury, or harm to yourself. See, David's servants believe that he's having a hard time with the idea of him living on and the child dying, that they're worried here that David's harming himself in the hope that God will somehow see that and spare the child. It's kind of similar to the priest who whips himself or do, you know, does something to somehow make himself more acceptable to God. And so now that God hasn't spared the child, they're worried that the guilt David will experience will cause him to harm himself in an even worse way. Their worry is unfounded, though, because David isn't trying to twist God's arm by inflicting damage upon himself. Like fasting is not the idea, I'm going to hold my breath until you give me what I want, God. I'm not going to eat. That's not what fasting is. We're not some spoiled child trying to make God do something that he doesn't want to do. And that tactic doesn't work anyway because it's just an, in, an inverted form of legalism. David has a different reason for why he's fasting, and so his next actions confuse his servants. Verse 19, but when David saw that his ch- servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said unto his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. And then David arose from the earth, he washed, took a bath, anointed himself, means to put on lotions, and he changed his apparel, his clothing, and came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. And then he came to his own house, and when he had required, in other words, asked to be served, they set bread before him, and he did eat. David had not bathed, he hadn't put on cologne, hadn't changed his clothing since the child grew ill. He'd been a mess. But now that he's cleaned up, the first thing he does is he goes down to the tabernacle. And when he gets there, he worshiped. Why does David do that first? Well, there's probably lots of reasons. But by doing this, David is communicating to everyone, to his people, to everyone who knew what he'd done, that he isn't angry at God, that he deserved worse than this, and so he will worship even though God's answer to his prayer was no. And that is what repentance looks like. It's the exact opposite of Pharaoh and Saul. David understood the position he had, the influence that came with it, and by submitting to God's judgment, by worshiping, David's trying to influence everyone in the right way now, just as he had influenced a lot of people in the wrong way for the last year or so. David is communicating what I did was wrong, and God doesn't owe me anything. I deserve to die. And so I will accept whatever the Lord sends my way, and I will continue to worship Him because He is worthy still. And so while David's behavior for the last year or so has been so far from the heart of God, David's heart of repentance is what truly makes him a man after God's heart. Now, I realize there are those who would say that there can be no redemption for people who do the things that David did. They would say that hell is made for people like David, for people who did the things, do the things he did. But I would suggest that that view betrays the vile lie that I am better than David, that God owes me better than David, and that therefore the cross is not really necessary after all. The cross is, in reality, just a neat thing to put up on Good Friday to make us feel better about ourselves because someone did something sacrificial. When we read the Gospels, they give the brutal details of Jesus' torture on the cross for our sin for a reason. So that when Pilate says, when Pilate must say, 
behold the man because it doesn't even look like one anymore. So we see a mirror image of what we all deserve. Of how ugly my sin is. It's not so we can turn our eyes away and dress up the cross in nicer clothes. When we look at it, it's supposed to smart. It's supposed to challenge everything that we think we are. It's supposed to drive me to my knees in horror at who I am compared to who God created me to be. So I believe that David marching down to the tabernacle when word of his actions has spread for the last seven days is probably one of the most faith-filled and courageous things a person could do. David worshipped because he believed God would still accept a wretched adulterer and murderer's worship. But there is a life and a future from God, even for those who have destroyed the lives and futures of others. Now, don't get me wrong, sin has awful consequences. David would still face future wars. David still would face rebellion from his own other son, Absalom. David still lost his child. But I have to believe there is life. I have to believe that there is a future for those who have done wickedly. Because if there is not, then none of us have any hope. Now, what is the path to that future life? Well, it's repentance. The Scriptures do not record David ever marrying again. In fact, from this point on in David's life, we no longer see a lust-driven man. It does seem that David changes. Now, People like to bring up and say, what about that weird event, you know, when he was on, you know, he's about to die and they bring him that woman to keep him warm at night, you know, whatever. We'll talk about that later. But that wasn't David's idea. From this point on, we don't ever see this kind of behavior from David again. And prior to this, the writer has said over and over again, and David did this, David did this. Can a person change and live a new life after they've done horrible things? If David can't, then none of us can. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 and 18, it's a verse most of you have likely heard a thousand times. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and then has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Hmm. This, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't use that illustration. This would be the equivalent of your very worst enemy coming to you, begging you to forgive for all the horrible things that they've done to you. And not only do you reconcile with them, you forgive them, but then you give them the responsibility to do your, your work. You trust them with everything. Not only does he make us a new creation, but he reconciles us to himself. He, God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He reconciles us to himself, and then he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. Like we're all of a sudden like the counseling expert on how to have great relationships. And yet that's what the Scripture that says that God has done for us. This is the difference between Christianity and every other faith. Every other faith promises some kind of do these things and you'll be okay after you die. Every other religion promises some kind of that, whether it's, you know, you're, you're Buddhist and Hindu and you go to nirvana or whether you're, you're, you know, believe in Islam and you keep the five pillars and you go to your paradise and if you're a guy, you get your 35 virgins 
Whatever it is, there's always some way, shape, or form of do these good things and you'll be okay after you die. Christianity instead says, come and die to who you've been and watch Jesus do good things through you from now into all eternity. Any other idea, any other idea is not Christianity. Any other idea is not the biblical faith. And so if people like David cannot be redeemed and used by God, if they have no hope, if they have no future, I would recommend, if that's your mindset, you start calling yourself something else because that is not Christianity. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then it goes on to say that the wages of sin is death. That's all of the verdict upon all of us. Not just David or people like David. Well, after David went and worshipped, he made the long walk back to his house. And when he had required, they set bread before him and he did eat. After he'd worshipped, he began to attempt to resume normal life. And so we're going to see now in verse 21, because his servants didn't understand why David was initially praying, his now behavior confuses them. Verse 21, and then said his servants unto him, what thing is this that you have done? You did fast and weep for the child while it was alive, but when the child was dead, you did rise and eat bread? We don't understand. So David answered, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David explains why he was praying in the first place here. It wasn't to twist God's arm. He fasted, he wept with tears, crying out to God for the life of the child because he said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me? The word to be gracious, it means to show an action of kindness, pity, or compassion. David had already experienced that kind of mercy because God didn't execute him like he deserved. So David's prayer wasn't, God, I'm going to hurt myself until you save this child. David's prayer was, God, please give me something I don't deserve. Let there be another way to communicate that you will not be mocked. Whatever path it is, I'll do it. Let there be another way. David denied himself not out of self-harm, but because he wanted God to see that this was his top priority. That eating regular meals, sleeping in his bed, the simple comforts of life, they were all really low on the priority list. He wanted God to know that this man who had had a lustful passion become the end-all, be-all of his life for an entire year, that that man had changed. And that maybe, just maybe, that change could serve as an alternative method of speaking to the world about what he'd done. Once that hope of an alternative method to communicate truth to the world was ended, why fast anymore? There was no reason. David had to move on as a changed man, even if everyone, even himself, didn't believe that man deserved a chance to live on. David explained, can I bring him back again? For David to pray for the child's return at this point would be rebellion against God's answer, which was no. Instead, David will put his hope in a future reunion. For he says, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David here shows his very clear belief in the resurrection of the dead. 
And so what David says I can focus on right now is making sure I end up in the same place that my son now is. This was the determination that took him down to the temple to worship and then to return to his dining table to be served. I'm going to live forever in such a way that I see him again. Does a man like David deserve to go on living? No. Does a man like him deserve to have God bless him going forward? No. But whether God would do either of those things, he would live for God from now on. And by God's grace, he would finish his life a different man than he'd been for the last year. So if you've had a massive failure in your life, one that has deeply wounded those closest to you, that must become your resolution to keep yourself in the love of God, to determine to let Christ live through you to the end of your days, to die a different person than you lived when you did those things. And to the person who will humble themselves like that, the Bible teaches us the Lord gives more grace. If you've ever never watched a documentary film called Tex, it's old and the videography is probably not great. Pastor Chuck helped put it together. Tex is about one of the young people who followed Charles Manson who murdered those people that they broke into their homes and killed them. The, one of the couples that was murdered by Tex, they had two kids. They were in the home when these guys broke in and murdered their mom and dad. They were believers. And these two kids, they frequently wrote to Tex to share the gospel with him, tell him they were praying for him. Eventually, Tex gave his life to Christ, and they went and visited him in the prison. There are many in the world who would say that's sick, to which I would say, that's pride speaking. Why do you deserve to be visited? Why do you? Why, is, what, what, what is, why have you have done that, that God can't forgive you? That someone else couldn't, you know, they could forgive you, but not this man. What have you done that makes you better? The Bible says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I don't know for sure. But my guess is that the part about Jesus wiping away every tear likely happened when David was reunited with his son in heaven. My guess is there were likely many apologies by David and much needed final healing for the foul thing that he did. Now, David's not out of the woods yet because his sin did just, and the consequences did not just impact him. Bathsheba also lost a son. And so in verse 24, there's some interesting things here that are difficult to see in the English translation. It says, And David comforted Bathsheba his wife and went in unto her and lay with her, and she bare a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. And he, the Lord, sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. We read that and it almost sounds like this kind of, oh, and everything is fine, and they went on with their relationship, and no big deal. There's a lot more here. The word here for comforted, it means to console someone by expressing your regret for what you did and a desire to fix it. David didn't just come and put his arm around and go, I'm so sorry, honey, this, you know, this was, you know, I can tell you're sad. No, David came to apologize for what he had done. You see, David's sin didn't just affect his son, it affected this woman that he had used, whose life he destroyed, a woman who likely wondered how she could go forward from here. Would God kill every child she'd have? Did she even have a future in God's eyes? 
We don't have any insight into David and Bathsheba's relationship beyond the affair and then the cover-up. That's it. But if I had to guess, I would also guess that this is the first time that David treated her like a person that God created and loved. It is also likely the first time he apologized. And so while these two had shared only great wickedness together up to this point, they now shared great loss and God's discipline together. And I think what David proposes to her at this point is the same hope that he found. I think he proposed that perhaps in God's mercy we can find some way forward as well, maybe even a fresh start, as absurd as that sounds after the horrible things we've done. And it seems she accepted his apology because the next phrase says that he went in unto her. And I realize the very next thing says that she bare him a child. And so we tend to correlate those two phrases together and say, well, they had sex and she got pregnant. That is not a correct understanding of this phrase, though. The phrase he went in means he began to live with her again. At some point, I don't know if it's just the last seven days, I I don't know when, but at some point, these two became separated. They were not living together anymore. The Bible doesn't give us the details. But when it says he went in, it seems that she accepts his apology, and the two decide to move forward and try. Let's try to do the right thing from now on. And so in this reconciliation, she did become pregnant again. He lay with her. That's a separate statement than went in. He lay with her, and she bare a son. And he, David, called his name Solomon. Solomon means man of peace. Now, 2 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 9, states that this name was given to David long before his affair. That God came to David on the same day that God sent Nathan to tell David, hey, you want to build me a house, but you can't. So I want to tell you, though, I'm going to build you a house. That same day that David learned that the Messiah would come from his line, God, David tells Solomon, we don't find this out till the end of David's life when David is instructing Solomon about how to be king after him. He tells him, God gave me your name on that day. So before the affair ever happened, before any of this went down, when David was right with the Lord and everything was going great, God told him, the child that's going to be the one who's going to be king after you, you're going to name him Solomon. Solomon means man of peace. David was a man of war. He tells him, this is why I could not build the temple, the third reason why he couldn't build it. I got blood on my hands, son. The Lord told me I'd have a son someday that I would call man of peace and that he would be the one who would be king after me. Well, isn't it interesting that David decides to name this boy of all of his sons, Solomon. The byproduct of a second chance for those who don't deserve one. He will be the man of peace. He will be better than I was. And it tells us that when God, David picked that name for Solomon, that God gave the thumbs up. He said, it says, and the Lord loved him. And he sent Nathan the prophet to come to David and give Solomon a special name from God. It means, it's Jedidiah, which means loved by the Lord, beloved of God. Solomon is evidence that when we repent, there is life after awful sin. There is hope for blessing and usefulness. And there is grace for those who don't deserve it. Now, I have to say, the final section of this chapter is a bit anticlimactic, but it does bring a conclusion to the situation that started this whole mess in the first place. And we're going to see David's repentance come full circle 
as he ends the war with Ammon like he should have started it on the front lines. So it tells us in verse 26, and Joab fought against Rabbah of the children of Ammon and took the city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and have taken the city of waters. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. That phrase fought here, and Joab fought against Rabbah, it's in the reflexive voice in the Hebrew. And what it means is, is that there came a point when this all went down bad for David, that David stopped giving orders. Joab was pretty much on his own. So Joab is the one who's taking care of this whole thing as David's going through this whole mess. And in doing so, he captured the city. All that remained was the king's fortress to take. And so he sent messengers to David, and he said, listen, this thing's almost done. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together. It's going to be the hardest fight that we're going to have this, up to this point. You encamp against the city, David. You take it, lest I capture it, and it be called after my name. Uh, it, the word actually called after my name means lest I get a name for myself. Joab may be many things, but he is not disloyal to David. He loves David, and he's David's strong, strongest supporter, despite whatever David has done. And this time, David comes. Verse 29. David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it, and he took it. And he took their king's crown from off of his head, the weight whereof was a talent of gold. It was with pre the precious stones, and it was set on David's head. And he brought forth the spoils of the city in great abundance. And then verse 31, we, nobody really knows what this is talking about. There's lots of debate. It says, he brought forth the people that were therein inside the city of Rabbah, put them under saws, literally placed them inside the saws, placed them inside the harrows of iron and inside the axes of iron. And then he made them pass through the, the brick kiln. The brick kiln was the valley where they sacrificed their children to Molech. The Ammonites were Molech worshipers. And thus he did unto all the cities of the children of Ammon. Wherever he came and David conquered the city, he would make them walk through this valley. And so David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Some people believe that David executed each of the Ammonites by these instruments. He sawed them in half or he, you know, hacked them with axes or whatever. Um, and then others believe, well, no, he put them to work as slave labor using these types of tools. Whatever it was, we can't know for sure because the language is pretty confusing here. It uses words we don't, we're not familiar with. Either way, this was David's way of putting an end to any ideas of a future rebellion from this people group. Now, it seems hard to me personally if you're going to hack people to pieces with axes and cut them in half with saws to then take them on a walk through a valley where they sacrifice their kids. So I do not believe that David did that. I believe he enslaved them. I believe they became slave labor for the Israelis. But feel free to disagree with me. Um, either way, it's not good news for the Ammonites. But I do find it interesting that in route to however David dealt with them, he leads them through the place where they had murdered their babies. A tender topic for David at this point in his life, you could say. And so David does this with every city, showing that the war wasn't just vengeance on the rebellion, but it was also to put an end to their wickedness. Now, one last thought before the team comes up. In Psalm 32, it's such an interesting psalm. It's got these four selahs in it, and I, I don't read them because we're not sure if they're in the original text or if they were added later by basically a, a worship leader to, for instruction, because this is the Jewish songbook. But the selahs, we don't even know what they're there for. A lot of people think they were for a pause. Some people think it was for like a, a humming sound that they would make or an instrumental. Um, we don't know for sure. But within these selahs of Psalm 32, it, it breaks up the situation in David's life. David, this is his prayer after God tells him he's not going to die. And so David first, he says, you know, this blessed is the guy who's forgiven because, man, the last year and a half has, has been awful for me. He explains, I acknowledge my sin to the Lord. 
God forgave me. Then he explains this is what godly people will do. When they sin, you know, we read that verse, thou art my hiding place, thou shalt preserve me from trouble, thou shalt surround me with songs of deliverance. Like we talk about that when we're going through a rough time. That's not the context of that verse. The context of that verse is when you sin, when you mess up big time, you need to run to dad because he's the only one who can get you out of the mess. And then we get the Selah, and we get this interesting, interesting two verses. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you shall go. I will guide you with my eye. Don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle. Many commentators believe that this was God's response to David. From now on, David, stop being stubborn. You can't afford to make mistakes like this anymore. Do you see the damage it wrought? I want you to be different. I want to guide you with my eye. I I don't want to have to put a bridle in your mouth and drag you around because you're screaming to go this way and, and it's danger. I just want to have to look at you and And you look at me and you go, oh, that's off limits? All right, I'm out. That's where I want you to go from now on, David. Because many sorrows come to those who don't submit to me. So, the word for tonight as we close, there's great forgiveness. There's great grace available to us when we blow it big time. There is nothing that we can do that... God won't bring us back. But the path is repentance. Let's all stand. Lord, I know there are likely some here tonight that the enemy reminds them over and over of their sin and the consequences of that sin and how it affected people around them. Lord, how we wish we could erase our own memories sometimes or get a time machine and somehow, somehow change what we did. But Lord, you call us to move forward. And so, Lord, I pray for those tonight whom the enemy frequently condemns, those who have repented like David did. I pray that you would Reveal to them tonight that you've washed them clean. That, Lord, they belong to you. And even as you have reconciled them to yourself, you've also committed unto them the ministry of reconciliation. That you still want to use them. They still have a future and a hope. God, we're all sinners in need of your grace. So I pray tonight that you pour it out upon us. Send us out as your ambassadors, not because, Lord, we qualify because we were good enough, Lord, but because there are those who need to hear the same grace, about the same grace we've experienced ourselves. Send us out, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.